on the road again. I just can't wait to get on the road again. The life I love is making music with my friends. And I just can't wait to get on the road again. Sing with me. On the road again. Just can't wait to get on the road again. The life I love is making music with my friends. And I can't wait to get on the road again. No, we're not going to go on, so... The theme is road. We're talking about roads and the Easter road. And in case you weren't here last week, let me just recap a little bit. We are into the season of Lent, and we are using this imagery of a Lent, of a, of a, of a road through the season of Lent. Lent is a season of penitence, of an awareness of our need for salvation so that we can appreciate more deeply uh, the work of Christ. And so that when we arrive at Easter, we are uh, filled with a, a, a deeper and a, and a fresher joy in what Christ has done for us. Our goal during Lent is these three things that I mentioned, I'll mention them each week, is first of all, we want to just understand a little bit better the nature of our, of our salvation, understand how, how this comes together. And we're, uh, we're looking at that and this, this gift of grace and how it plays out uh, in us and, and, and among us. Secondly, we want to grasp these biblical tools to help us understand some, some places that we can land in Scripture that help us explain uh, what this road to salvation is. And then thirdly, we want this also to equip us to, be, um, to have a, a higher level of confidence in terms of extending an invitation, perhaps, or not perhaps, to extend an invitation to a friend, a family member, a neighbor, a coworker, or someone you go to school with to come and worship with us on Easter, one of the easiest entry points to church for somebody who might have a, some sense of, of the spiritual, that Easter is a good Sunday to come, and we can extend that invitation. Our preparation then is traveling what we're calling the, the, this Easter road or what we're calling sometimes the Roman road. And we're looking at these texts. Last week we were in Romans 3.23, which says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And today we look at Romans 5.8 that says, Even though we were sinners, Christ died for us. Next week we'll look at uh, uh, chapter 6, six that speaks of um, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. In Romans 10, Pastor Diana will open up that passage about what it means to confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, how we become a Christian. And in Romans 12, 1 talks about how we live out that life. And in 12, 1, actually, we come back to that on Palm Sunday and speak of this road that we follow as a way of humility, as we follow Christ and how we live out our lives as a, a way of humility headed on into Easter Sunday. So that's the Roman road, and we're calling it the Easter road. And last week we looked at sin and the fact that we all need Jesus. Today we look at the fact that Jesus paid it all, as we've been singing this morning. Wonderful set of music, wasn't it, that highlighted the sacrifice of Christ and the, the deep love of God. So what we're looking at is not just that Jesus paid it all, but we're marveling at the, the immense love of God. What's, what's behind that gift that Christ paid is the incredible and deep and rich love of God. And, of course, one of the best verses of Scripture on the love of God is John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But today we also come on our Easter road to one of the great verses of Scripture also, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's even better in context, so let me read the Scripture lesson for the morning from Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. I'm reading from the New Living Translation here. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. 
Now, no one is likely to die for a good person, though someone might be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right with God in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's judgment. For since we were restored to friendship with God by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be delivered from eternal punishment by his life. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God, all because of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us in making us friends of God. This text starts where we were last week with the helplessness or the hopeless place of being far from God of being so far short of the glory of God in in deep need uh, 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 in a a hopeless situation. It starts there, but then it soars to this high place of God's incredible, unconditional love, God's the life-saving sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the undeserved, undeserved favor of his grace, this free gift of life, no strings attached. We go from the utter hopelessness to the heights of the incredible love of God. We're saying this and seeing this, that the Easter road is the road to reconciliation with God, this vertical reconciliation of getting right with God, and it also affects the relationships with each other. And this road is taking us through Paul's letter to the Romans on our way to a deeper understanding and experience of Jesus and his reconciling work of salvation. And today, today our journey moves from the depth of our need to the height of God's love shown in the redeeming sacrifice of Christ. We're going to look at, first of all, how we are utterly hopeless. Secondly, we're going to look at how we are lavishly loved. I love those words. And thirdly, how we are continually encouraged as we live into this love relationship with God. Utterly hopeless. Utterly. Do you ever ever just like say a word several times and kind of go, what a weird word. Utter. Utterly, utter, utter. It sounds like you're talking about a cow at first, doesn't it? So, utterly. It's just one of those words. But what utterly means is it's completely and without qualification. It's used informally as an intensifier for something else. It's already kind of a, a, a um, something, something lacking. Utterly, utterly. And so this takes us then to re- revisit the starting point where we were last week, and that is the starting place of our powerlessness, our powerlessness. Last week, Romans 3.10 said, no one is good, and 3.23 says, all have sin. We all have this sin nature in us. We have a sin bent into us. We have this nature in us that walks away from God and turns against his leadership in our lives. We, we may drop in from time to time and ask for help or fall in love with him for a while, but then we shrink back to running lives on our own. We have this sin bent, and we are powerless to change that bent. And now in chapter 5, Paul summarizes our condition as utter hopelessness, incapable of working out any righteousness for ourselves. The New International, we, the, the NLT said utterly, utterly Uh, utterly weak, and NIV says powerless. We are powerless. And that reminds us, if you're familiar at all with the the 12 principles, or particularly the 12 steps um, for those who are dealing with addictions. Originally developed as Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 steps, and they begin with step one says this, we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. 
And, of course, those steps have been adapted to other areas of addictive tendencies and addictive behaviors that many of us can relate with and some of those tendencies that, that kind of try to press into our lives as well. We admit that we're powerless over these things and that our lives could become unmanageable when we cave into this. But only a few words into verse 6, Paul turns it from hopelessness to victorious when he says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. And that takes us to step two of AA that says, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We were powerless, but we came to believe that there was a power greater than ourselves or a higher power that could restore us to sanity. And for us who know and love Jesus Christ, we know that that higher power has a name and his name is Jesus. He is Jesus, our rescuer, as we read of him here as we travel the Roman road. He is Jesus, our rescuer, who came at just the right time. I love that sense of of, of drama that comes into the gospel. There's a great feeling of, of drama, that the salvation story is a drama unfolding, and it's all in the timing. We read sometimes at Christmas time, Galatians 4, 4 says, that in the fullness of time, or at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The sense of drama, of waiting till that last minute of, of something happening, just at the right moment, uh, the, the world of drama has picked up on that. I think of those James Bond or Mission Impossible moments where he, the camera comes back to the, the, the ticking clock and the numbers are going down, down, and down, only moments from the destruction of the world when at just the right time, Tom Cruise or James Bond comes along and turns it off. Or the new dramas with, with the Marvel superheroes and all the crazy things that are happening with, with computer-generated things. But it's still the same thing, that at the last moment, at just the right time, somebody swoops in to save the world from destruction. This is real life, though. The gospel is a real-life drama in which we live. Jesus really did come at just the right time to to rescue us. To call him Savior means to to speak of one who is a rescuer. A rescuer from a life of hopelessness. A rescuer from a life of utter hopelessness and nothingness. We were utterly hopeless, but then Paul turns, takes a big, big turn in the road to his main point on this stop, where we see that we are lavishly loved. Lavishly loved. Now, if utterly is an odd word, then lavish is sort of a sweet word, isn't it? I love that word. Lavish. Not as a description of like a a setting or a a decor or a banquet. I don't care about that kind of lavish. I like it as a verb. Because as a verb, it's sort of something that just sort of... I I discovered chocolate. I just picture chocolate sauce. You know, a plain lump of white vanilla ice cream must be lavished. Lavished with good chocolate sauce, like yours, Nancy, that kind of chocolate sauce. Lavish it, and then love it. We are lavishly loved. Paul builds to this, though, as you look at it. Before verse 8 comes verse 7, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> but verse 7 says this, Now, no one is likely to die for a good person, though someone might be willing to die for a person who is especially good. No one is likely to die for a good person. Maybe you might be willing to die for someone who's especially good. And so we ask the question, who would you die for? Who would you die for? Maybe someone especially near and dear to you, maybe for a great and noble cause. We catch stories in the news just, uh, I don't know if it was yesterday or the day before, a story of a man who, 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 who rushed into a burning house and saved one of the children and came out with that child, went back in for two more people, was able to rescue those people, but he lost his life. He obviously was willing 
to risk his life to save the other three people in the house. And he lost his life. Sometimes we would be willing to do that. A phrase that we hear sometimes now is sort of, that just sort of comes off our lips is, I'd take a bullet for him. Or he'd take a bullet for her. Have you ever heard that one? I'd take a bullet for them. I, I found some wonderful, kind of, kind of some little twists on that. Here, here, here's one. I'd take a bullet for you. Maybe in the foot, but not in the head. <laughs> Isn't that great? Here's another one. Here's another, I like this one. I'd take a Nerf bullet for you. <laughs> you know, maybe for a really good person we love dearly, we'd take a bullet. When it comes down to it, we're not quite so sure. Some of you know the story of Lawrence of Arabia. It was a drama, but it's a real person. T.E. Lawrence was a British officer during and after World War I. And he served in the Arab Revolt, and he became famous and even legendary as Lawrence of Arabia. And author Rita Stoden tells this story from Lawrence's life. In 1915, during World War I, Lawrence was leading a company of Arabs across the Sinai Peninsula, to attack the Turkish garrison guarding the coast of Aqaba. Things were desperate. Food was almost gone. Water was down to the last drops. Their hoods were over their heads to shelter them from the wind, which burned like fire and from the stinging sandstorm. Someone said, where's Jasmine? And another said, who's Jasmine? And a third person answered, that yellow-faced man from Man. He killed a Turkish tax collector and fled to the desert. The first one said again, look, Jasmine's camel has no rider. His rifle's strapped to the saddle, but Jasmine is not there. And the second man said, someone has shot him on the march. And the third said, he's not strong in the head. Perhaps he is lost in a mirage. He is not strong in body. Perhaps he has fainted and fallen off his camel. And then the first said, what does it matter? Jasmine was not worth half of a crown. And the Arabs hunched themselves on their camels and rode on. But Lawrence turned and rode back the way he had come. Alone in the blazing heat, at the risk of his life, he went back. After about two hours' ride, he saw something against the sand. It was Jasmine, blind, mad with heat and thirst, Jasmine being murdered by the desert. Lawrence lifted him up on his camel, gave him some of the last drops of this precious water, and slowly plodded back to his company. When he had come to them, the Arabs looked in amazement and said, Here's Jasmine, they said. Jasmine, not worth half a crown, saved at his own risk by Lawrence, our Lord. <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia was willing to risk his life. Lawrence thought of this person, Jasmine, who'd been deemed by some other people as not worth much, and yet to Lawrence, he was worth a lot. And so he was willing to risk his life. So this comes close, doesn't it, in a human life? But Jasmine was not an enemy of Lawrence's. He was just a person that he saw worthy of saving. We are actually much less worthy than the person of Christ. (laughs) In fact, it says here that we were enemies of God in the ways that we lived in our predisposition to sin. We were enemies of God, rejectors of God, but Christ died for us anyway. And why? Because of God's big love, God's lavish love. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. He is that kind of God. It is his very nature. He loves us so much, he wants us to be home with him. Some of you who were part of our church a year ago remember that we had a big dining room table up here during the season of Lent. Remember that? And we were working our way through the book called The Prodigal God. And we were marveling at the deep 
love of God that would welcome a son who turned against him back to the table. Welcome both of his sons who in their own ways had turned against him. God wants us home. He wants us at that table. He wants that more than anything. That is the essence of who he is, is love. God is love. And this is not a sweet, sentimental, feeling love. But this is a big, vast, action-oriented, life-affirming love. This is a life-changing love. This is a big love. This is a can't-wrap-my-mind-around-it-it's-so-big kind of love. It's integral to everything that he does. It's so big. God showed his great, big love by sending us Christ. I love some of the older songs we sang today. And one that I found this week or was reminded of is an old song called The Love of God. And I love this verse. I'll put it on the screen, but I love to read it. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Obviously, our ways of writing and communicating have changed in a hundred years. And yet you grasp the fullness of this overwhelming love. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. These are familiar words. What does it mean that Christ died for us, to die for now, that's a phrase that's used for really important things like cheesecake, you know. It's to die for. No, it's not. It might kill you. <laughs> but when we talk about dying for us, the word for, F-O-R, has, there's some slight differences. There's actually two different Greek words that get translated for. And one of them means in place of, and the other one means on behalf of. To die in the place of, to die for someone, to die on behalf of someone, to die for them. See how they both work? And here they both kind of work. They they make sense in terms of what we understand about Christ and our our theology here. The one to die uh, in the place of is is where we, we get that big long word when we study theology of substitutionary atonement. That means Jesus died in our place. Instead of us, he, he died to, to pay the penalty. And that's, that's true. That's one of the views, one of the ways that we explain what happens in atonement. But the word that Paul uses here is the one that's translated more on behalf of. Christ died on behalf of us. And really, on behalf of communicates just a, a slight more this, this sense of lavish love. You see, a prisoner can die in the place of another. Just dying instead of. But on behalf of seems to bring more of an additional element of, 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 of action on behalf of another with, with more of a sense of empathy, more of a sense of, of care. To die on behalf of shows a, there's something kind of a relational thing going on there of a genuine caring and a devotion. And so when we speak of Christ dying on behalf of us, we, we relate more to the loving empathy of God in Christ. We are lavishly loved. And this is an important part of understanding atonement that Christ died on behalf of us, is that nothing ever changed in the heart of God. The cross did not change God from a wrathful, angry God to a loving God. The cross did not change the heart of God. Yes, we, we deserved the wrath of God because of the place we were in sin, but it, it, it grieved the heart of God because he loved us and never stopped loving us. And so Christ came and died on behalf of us 
that we might know the lavish love of God. It paid the penalty and made friendship and relationship possible with this lavishly loving God. Christ died for sinners. We are forgiven. We are redeemed. Jesus paid it all. We sang that this morning. Is that enough? Well, actually, it is enough, but there's more. You see, we, we need to move beyond being just forgiven to actually living in this life. And that's why I have here as my third point, the words continually encouraged. We are not only lavishly loved, we are continually encouraged. Listen to verses 9 and 10 here. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him by the death of his son, how much more... Having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? What's Paul getting at? He's using this how much more phrase a couple different times here. I think part of what, the way I described it, it, it's more than just our sin being taken care of. It's not just sin management. It's It's a new life. Christ died. Yes, he forgave our sins, but Christ lives. Christ lives among us and lives within the hearts of those who have trusted him as Savior. He is carrying us forward to that final day, but he's constantly present and continually encouraging us in this journey we walk now as those who've been forgiven. It's not just that God has forgiven sin. It's that he he wants us around. He he wants us in friendship and in relationship with him. The Christian life is more than sin management. See, sometimes we just think of that way. We we hear a compelling speech or a, a sermon or we read something and we realize our need for forgiveness. So we accept Jesus. Why? So that our sins are forgiven and we're going to heaven. Done. And then we continue to live our life the way we used to live it. But at least we know our sins are forgiven where we're going. Well, it's true our sins are forgiven. And we do know where we're going, but there's so much more going on. The Christian life is so much more than, than sin management. Or even in the living of our life, sometimes that's the way we tend to live our Christian lives. I, I, I pray, I get tempted, I sin, I feel guilty, I confess, and then I feel and then I receive forgiveness, and then I feel better until I mess up again, and I feel guilty, I confess, I forgive. God forgive me, then I feel better. I, I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel. Who's that all about? <laughs> yes, we do experience that process of, of confession and forgiveness. It's very real. But our walk with Christ is so much more than just managing how we feel about our sin and ourselves. God calls us to a life of following, of trusting, of serving, and of loving. So verse 11 says, So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God, all because of what Jesus Christ has done for us in making us, his, making us friends of God or reconciliation. He calls us to be living in this, living in this love, living in our real lives. Not just our churchy Sunday, every once in a while Sunday. This, this is life. Our whole life is lived in the love of God. It, it ought to make a difference in, in how we live every day. Not just how we treat people, but how we approach ourselves even, how we see ourselves. When I live in his love, when I'm completely confident of the deep love of God for me, with an assurance that I have received grace, I, I have just generally have a higher level of, of confidence. I, I, I have more hope for my day. I, I, I have a stronger sense of motivation of, of, of living out my life under this canopy, if you will, or this environment of the love of God. When I live in his love, then I also, when, even when I'm confident on the days that aren't so happy and sunshiny and bright, 
I have a greater level of endurance. I can, I can persist more. I can persevere more when things are very difficult. And when I'm dealing with deep pain in my own life or deep pain in another's life. As Pastor Diana prayed this morning, we had talked this morning about prayer today and we remarked on some of the work, some of the difficult work that some of you are doing and yet some of the wonderful training that some of our people are receiving through Ava, through Stephen Ministry Training some of the works that some people are doing in many of the soul groups around the country to get at the deep roots of pain. And yet, when it's in, the, in this environment of the love of God, there's a, there's a place to hold us that, that is safer and we can endure. And then as we get healthy, we, we find that we're more motivated to care for others, not just because it's a nice thing to do, but because the love of God compels us to do that. And when we also live in this environment, love, and realize that other people are at different places in their process, we actually can be more patient with other people. Yep, that's part of the answer. It's not just, Lord, give me patience and give it to me now. It's, Lord, let me realize who you are and how you love me and you love the people that are driving me crazy. Change me. The people that I work with, the people that I go to school with, the people in my family that don't get it. We know what it feels like to be loved. We know what it feels like to be deeply loved. And we also know those days of what it feels like when we really don't experience that love. And so we can have an empathy with those who are feeling a little bit lost. We can have an empathy with those that feel like they aren't that lovable. Or they might be worth as much as Jasmine, who is only worth half a British crown. That's a coin, by the way, not a crown. When we're living in love, we have a greater empathy for those that aren't rather than a disdain. We need to know what makes up our salvation. We need to know what the Word of God says about our need and the sacrifice of Christ. We need to know how to give an answer for the faith that we have. Right? <laughs> So it's being taught at the 9 o'clock hour to our junior high, senior high, and others who just can't stay out of that room because they're eager to know this too. Not that you should stay out of the room. I didn't mean that. We need to know. We need to understand it. And then we need to go. We need to go to others who need to know that as well. I love this quote from Tim Keller, and he's the one that wrote um, The Prodigal God that we were working with a year ago right now. Tim Keller said this. Here's the gospel. You're more sinful than you ever dared believe. You're more loved than you ever dared hope. <laughs> we don't like to tell other people they're more deeply sinful than they ever thought. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? We see it in the Word and we know it in our own life. We know it when we look inside that prayer of confession we prayed today. Ouch, huh? You need to go to that deep place. We are more sinful than we ever dared believe, but we are more loved than we ever dared hope. We need to know that and not just feel it. Yeah, feel it. Enjoy it, but know it. I want to encourage you to identify those places when you have deeply experienced the love of God. In what ways have you experienced the deep love of God? And how does that empower not only your worship here, but how does it affect your relationship with others every day? Not the churchy relationships, not things that we just deem as spiritual, where the rest of life is secular. Life is one, you live one life. We live one life as one person. Even if we have some shadowy sides to ourselves, we know who we are. 
And in that life, where do we experience the love of God? And how will that affect our relationships with others? And then this final question, who do you know who needs to know the deep love of God? It might be you. (laughs) And it might be others that you know. And so when you're reflecting, I want you in these next couple weeks as we're looking towards Easter to jot down a name or two. Some of you were here years ago when we used to do something called Bring My World to Christ. It was easy to write a bunch of names down and we'd bring it up and put it on the table and we were done. Some of you weren't done though. Several of you prayed faithfully. I'm proposing we just kind of do that on our own now. Develop your own list of bringing my friend to church rather than bring and maybe to Christ, we hope. We pray for that. But begin to pray for who is it, God, who needs to know and experience the deep love of God and hope and live in that love. Let's pray. Lord God, this is one of those Sundays when I feel like I'm the most privileged person in this room and I get to speak of these things. But we are all privileged, Lord, because they are true and they've come directly to us from you. Lord, help us to understand the utter depth of our own brokenness at the same time we understand the incredible heights and depth of your love for us. Help us, Lord, to live into that love today, this week, as we honor you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.